0: Did Anybody grow up seeing that movie? <laughs> We're giving away our age at this point, I guess, but you know the reality is fear and courage those are words that we can uh, relate to all too well, right from our earliest childhood experiences, right The fact is that at one time or the other uh, we 've all been afraid of something so you know when i was uh, when I was a kid, I grew up in rural Pennsylvania in Amish country. I am not Amish, just so you know but um But I grew up there, and we grew up uh, in a little subdivision in a very small town, didn't have any fast food, no stoplights, you know the deal. And uh, anyway, in fact, there's a picture, I think I pulled up a a Google map, if you see the A there, that is 217 West McKinley Avenue, where I grew up. And as you can see, there was pretty much nothing but farms uh, behind us. In fact, the little green patch that's behind it wasn't even there. I'm not sure what that building is now. But uh, so right smack up to the back of the house was, was a field. And when you were a young boy, I mean, it can be pretty cool, right, to go out and play in the fields. I mean, my buddies and I used to go out there, and we'd shoot each other with BB guns in the fields and all that. I don't recommend that for any kids here. Um, but we would go out, and we'd be out all day exploring and that kind of thing. But the funniest thing happened at nighttime. Like, it gets dark. Have you guys ever been in, like, a rural area, a farm at night? It is creepy, I mean, it's like, you know, like I'm always, when I was out there and it was getting dark, I'd wait for like an alien or the zombies to walk out of the, the cornfield, right? And then there's a the sound of the corn rustling. And then there's weird animal sounds, right? Cows and pigs and chickens and everything else. And so I used to be freaked out by that. And so those, the sounds and just the, the mental, kind of the images, I kept on picturing aliens. And so it wasn't helpful for me. And so what, what I would do was at nighttime, like all day we would play out there, but at nighttime... I wouldn't play out back anymore. I would only go out front of the house and play where there's a lot of activity, a lot of people, and that kind of thing. And so, and I had this fear for a long time, you know, preschool, elementary school, even up to kind of middle school, I still would freak myself out going out there. And so, um, but, but in about eighth grade, I met a girl named Jane Zeller. And so, and Jane lived about four miles away from me, out even further in the country, if that's easy to believe there's, there is further country. And um, so I guess I would say she was probably one of my first crushes, Jane was. And um, so we, uh, you know, we'd hang out at school, but, you know, school was even like nine miles away from us, and so we didn't even get to hang out that much afterwards. We couldn't see each other. And so we decided, and uh, let me just say this. Um, my kids aren't in here, right? Okay. Any other kids? Don't ever try what I'm going to describe, because your parents will totally bust you out. But anyway, and don't tell my parents, okay, because they don't know the story either yet. Although they've... Fortunately, I'm not sure if they know what the internet is, so they may not listen to this message, but, but anyway, so, so Jane and I decided one night we would sneak out of the house and meet each other. Again, kids, don't try this at home, but, um, so like, I don't know, one or two in the morning, whatever time it was, so, and, uh, you know, so we plotted this out, and we said, okay, you know, we confirmed it at school that day, and so I got ready, and I thought, well, okay, I can either go out the, through the door, but, you know, we had a little creakiness in our house, so I thought I might get busted if I do that, so I decided to jump out my window instead. And so now, we had a ranch home in the front. In the back, it was a ranch, and then it dipped down, so it was a second story where I was jumping out of. And so, you know, I kind of opened the window, I jumped out, and I turned around, and I was like, oh, I hadn't made a plan on how to get back in the house. <laughs> First failure, okay? And I was like, but you know what? I didn't care because Jane Zeller was waiting for me, right? <laughs> the allure of Jane Zeller was drawing me to it. And then I start running down out to the backyard, and all of a sudden I stop, and I'm like, cornfields. And, like, my heart starts racing, and I start getting sweaty, and I'm, like, feeling like I'm going to pass out or throw up. I'm not sure what I wanted to do. And I'm like, and then I'm really conflicted. Like, first of all, I don't know how I'm going to get back in the house. Second of all, I don't know how I'm going to get through the cornfield to get out to the road. So, you know, finally, I I just, like, I was like, okay, Jane Zeller, Jane Zeller, Jane Zeller. It was like, you know, the pumping yourself up for a football game. I took off through the cornfield. I mean, I ran... Like, and I, I swore aliens were chasing me as I was running, right? So I was running, I was running, and I made it out to 645, the street, the road, and what do I run into? A farm. And I'm like, ah! And then there's cows, you know, and you know, all these weird sounds at night, right? And I am freaking out. And I'm like a tenth of a mile from my house. I still got like three and a half, three, three and three quarters miles to go. So I'm running, and I'm running, and I never ran so fast. I think I ran that whole thing in about three minutes. And... Um, And so I finally get out there, you know, and I mean, I must have been a mess, you know, and Jane was there. And so we hung out for a little while and, uh, you know, then I ran back home. And it's funny because I wasn't afraid running back home. Like I had the draw of Jane Zeller had gotten me over, it, right? So I ran home. I mean, there's weird sounds. There was still the rustling. I still had to go through the cornfield and that freaked me out still. But then I got back home and I'm not going to tell you how I got back in the house because I don't want any kids to try it. So, but I did, I didn't get caught. And so, um, and so I did that a number of times. And so, because um, we never do anything, right, I mean, the reality is, until we get caught. Anyway, I'm going to get so busted by my kids out of this one. But anyway, the point of this story is that I was afraid, like, I mean, that was one of my big, big, big fears. But what gave me courage? The allure of Jane Zeller, right? She helped me overcome my fears. And the truth is that most of us eventually overcome our childhood fears, don't we? But as we grow older, we develop maybe more sophisticated fears, right? Things like maybe um, the fear of rejection or the fear of failure. It's funny because statistics reveal that only 7 or 8% of the things that we actually fear or worry about actually ever happen. So that means over 90% of the things that we worry about never come to pass. And so it seems like we should work on really putting those things aside, right? Because they just waste a lot of our time. And I think we should, but the problem is overcoming fear, it's a challenge for each of us. And it's also the dilemma that the Israelites faced in Haggai 2. If you weren't with us last week, we started a study in the book of Haggai called From Ruin to Restoration, and uh, I'll recap in just a minute. But, but they, uh, we come to chapter 2, and we, we see all of a sudden something that's happening after they'd begun the work of rebuilding the temple. They were starting to fear failure. They feared the uncertainties of the future. And because of their fear... Their work on the temple, it slowed because that fear paralyzed them and kept them from acting on it. And so God sends Haggai, his prophet, with a message that calls people to be strong and to have courage. And so the question I ask myself, and probably Israelites were asking, is, well, how do we find courage? Well, that's the million-dollar question that we're going to look to answer as we, uh, as we study this text. I'm going to start off by just reading this to, uh, to get us level set here this morning. Chapter 2, oh, by the way, if you want uh, to follow along in the Bibles, in the chairs there, page 946, book of Haggai. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and ask them, Who of you has left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when we came out of Israel, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Now let's recap from last week. Fifty thousand faithful Jews returned from captivity in Babylon and settled back in Jerusalem uh, with a command from God to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar sixty-six years before. But, but the Israelites they ended up in this sort of a spiritual depression that lasted for like fifteen years. And so God raised up the prophet Haggai to awaken the people from their spiritual apathy. And as a result of Haggai's preaching, the people offered their lives, time, abilities, and finances to the Lord in order to accomplish his work. And do you remember what happened? Well, they experienced spiritual revival, right? And they went, again on, uh, they went to work again on God's temple. And as we come to chapter 2 now, we're told that the word of the Lord came again to the prophet Haggai. And so the date now is the 21st of the seventh month, or according to our calendar, it would be October 17th, 520 B.C. Now, it's been nearly a month since people had resumed work on the temple. And this first month of building had been going really slow for a couple of reasons. First, it was an enormous job to clean up all the rubble and the debris that's left for the 60 plus years. And the seventh month in the Jewish calendar was also filled with a bunch of different festivals. And during those festival times, the Israelites, they weren't allowed to do any work. And so God calls Haggai to speak a second time to the people. And he asks them three questions First is, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Now, you've got to ask yourself, why does God ask these questions? Do you think it's because he doesn't know the answer? I mean, of course not. He's not looking for an answer. He knows what's going on. He knows how they're feeling. He wanted to get to the heart of the problem. You see, after just a month of work, they were already experiencing discouragement and a fear of failure. Why? Why? Because even at this early stage, they were comparing the temple that they were constructing against the magnificence of the temple of Solomon that was destroyed 66 years earlier. And so before God is going to give a solution to the people's fear, he uses these questions so that the people, first of all, would acknowledge the fact that their temple was not going to be as splendid as Solomon's. He asks, he says, who among the people had seen Solomon's temple? And there were people that were old enough to remember it. Then he asks them, what they thought about the new temple that they were working on. And did it seem like nothing compared to the original? In fact, in the Old Testament private book of Ezra, we're told that the elders who had seen the first temple actually wept over the difference of the two. You see, the temple of Solomon, it was absolutely stunning. It had gold fixtures, cedar paneling, it contained great treasures. I mean, Solomon totally blinged out the first temple. But this time around, it was different, majorly different. Where Solomon had a lot and a lot of resources. These people, they were of limited means and resources. And so God is making them face the facts. He's not trying to cover it up. He's not trying to sugarcoat it. He doesn't tell them that they over-idealized the good old days or that they were putting themselves down too much. I mean, the people feared things weren't going to be like the good old days. They feared the work they were doing wouldn't measure up to the splendor of that first temple. And God says, yeah, you're right. Things aren't as good as they used to be. Now, before we start ripping on how fearful and how wimpy the Israelites are here, maybe we should acknowledge that we in the church may experience the same kind of fears. As we face uh, change and growth, we may at times be a little frightened and apprehensive because those things can be scary. As we sense where God is calling us to, to expand eastward, possibly the community center and a second campus, as we look farther east, to India for a partnership, a significant partnership with IJM there, that stuff can be scary. It can be overwhelming. It can look too big for us. And so we may find ourselves comparing ourselves against the work or against others. But as we face this work of ministry and as we seek to be obedient to God in all areas of our life, we will no doubt experience fear of failure, whether as individuals or together as a church just as the Israelites did. But God has gifted each of us, and he calls us each into ministry. And our job isn't to sit around and to compare ourselves against others or to how things used to be or to fear what lies ahead, but instead with courage to follow where God is leading. I mean, fear, it's a normal response to the uncertainties of life. But the questions the Israelites had to face and in the church today we have to face is whether we're going to allow fear to paralyze us from moving ahead of ministry or not. And so where did the Israelites find courage to overcome those fears? They found courage in the character of God. So let's look at God's call for courage. In verse four, it says this, but now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the lord almighty now here god he calls everyone to be strong or to take courage and the idea of being strong isn't this physical sense of being strong not like god was saying hey use those muscles and get to work would you he's talking about a spiritual inner strength and courage and it's not a unique command from god right when moses delivered his final charge to the people just before they crossed the jordan river to enter into the promised land what did he tell them he said, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Shortly, before, uh, after, Joshua, um, uh, shortly after that, Joshua, who was Moses' successor, he stood on the far side of the Jordan to begin the conquest that God had commanded him. And he, and he said, speak to the people and tell them, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. David gave a similar charge to Solomon about building the first temple. First Chronicles, David says, Be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. And in the New Testament, Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, think about each of these situations. In each of them, God had a task for all the people ahead of them, and they faced some uncertainties, and no doubt they had uh, feelings of fear and concern, right? Moses, they were leading the people into the promised land, a yet unknown land. Joshua faced the threat of war and conquest and the inhabitants of the land. In David's case, Solomon's people were called to build this magnificent temple. And in Paul's writing to the Ephesians, they were being instructed about spiritual warfare but notice something else the leaders and the people they're not just called by God to a specific task and then he just kind of says okay go and he leaves them hanging no in each case the command to have courage in their task is followed by a reassuring statement of God's character Moses Joshua David and Paul all focus on the fact that God's power is a source of our strength and so it's the same here as Haggai speaks to the leaders and the people who were faced with this task and were afraid. God says, take courage, be strong, continue the work. But it's not left at that. God goes on to list, a, uh, give a list of reasons why they should be strong. You see, if courage is found in the character of God, then God needs to reveal those things about it. And he does that. First of all, they know that he's a God who keeps his promises, right? In the verse 5, God promises to be present with them. He says, hey, look, my spirit remains among you. Don't fear. You see, the same way that God had promised his people before, he again declares that they don't need to fear because he's with them. God didn't say, hey, some future date my spirit will be with you. He said, no, it's with you right now. And it's the presence of God that makes God's people strong. Earlier in verse 5, God reminds them that it was by his power that he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He effectively said, hey, I was with you back then and I'm with you right now. And I mean, as we look back over our lives, isn't it really true that God has met our needs? You know, maybe not all our wants, but our needs. I know he has mine. And God's faithfulness in the past, it gives us good reason to believe that he will be faithful in the future. Now the Israelites, they could also find courage in knowing that God was a God of power. Right, verses six and seven, they remind us that God is the creator of all things, and it's he that is in control. I mean, the reality is, in ourselves, we're not strong. It's why God doesn't say, go on, I know you can do it, be strong, give it your best, right? That advice is great as a football game or a talent contest, but it's not valuable in spiritual things because we're not up to our spiritual tasks. You know, seven years ago, I was employed happily as a sales rep for Oracle Software. I'd been with a company, and the company that they had acquired for six-plus years, uh, and I really liked the company. I liked the job. I have to say I especially liked the fact that I got to eat filet mignon a couple times a week on the company tab. But things were changing for me. A year earlier, I had made a promise to God that I would go wherever he wanted me to do, that I would do whatever he wanted, regardless of what the cost, and God called me on that. And so when Ray and I were talking one day, and uh, he asked me if I would consider joining the staff, the first thing I did actually was almost spit my food out at him. Uh, but my reaction was, you've got to be crazy. Like, uh, uh, that's not me, right? I'm not cut out for working there. I, I started comparing myself to other people on staff here, and I thought, I didn't measure up, right? I didn't think I was spiritual enough. I didn't think I was good enough. I didn't think I was a lot of things enough. But over time, it became clear that God wanted, uh, wanted me here. And so with prayer and many conversations, uh, my wife, Sherry, and I agreed to join the staff. And the interesting thing about about fear is in the sales cycle, you know, you sell, you sell, you sell, you're giving, you know, presenting information, you're, you know, talking to a lot of different people, trying to make your case on why your product would be the best one for them. And towards the end of the sales cycle, the biggest indicator of knowing whether they're going to buy your product or somebody else is when they start to get afraid in the conversations with you. When fear enters the equation, it means they've already picked you. Because what's happening is this person is now saying, okay, I'm going to sign a 3 or $4 million contract. And if it doesn't work out, I'm going to get fired. Or I'm going to look like a fool in front of my coworkers or upper management. So right before they tell you that you've been selected, they are afraid. And that's the last thing that happens. And the funny thing in this uh, situation was once we made that decision, there was another fear that I hadn't even really thought much about. I mean, a little bit, but that cropped up. See, once the financial details were made clear to us, that fear came up. You see, Oracle, it was pretty financially lucrative. In fact, the salary that Parkview offered me was 10% of my earnings the prior year at Oracle. And I'm not going to lie, that is scary. And you know what? Our lifestyle now, it's not what it would have been if I was at Oracle, right? I don't eat filet mignon three times a week. We don't have a second home. We don't have a boat. But you know, God's provided everything we've needed. But even with that fear done, I still am afraid. Every time I walk out on the, here sta- on the stage, I get nervous. Sometimes I get downright anxious. I worry that I'll mess up. And you know, that opening music set we played this morning, I messed up a lot of notes. I messed up a bunch of guitar chords. I sang the wrong words at one point. Every time I come out to speak, as I'm doing right now, I'm worried that I'll make an idiot out of myself by saying something stupid. And you know what? A lot of times I do. I feel inadequate. I feel weak when I walk out here. But you know what? Like Moses, we're all weak. Like Joshua, we all face tasks that are impossible by human means. Like Solomon, we're not the heroes that maybe our dads were. And like the people in Haggai's day, we may fear failure. But the thing that we can be strong and be equal to the task is because God keeps his promises, and God is a God of power. Another thing that God wants them to know in this text is that his character is that he is a God with a purpose. Right, Verses 6 and 7 read this way. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. Now, these are verses that are, are are. It can be tough. You have to you have to kind of dig in underneath and say, what is he really talking about here? Well, see what they actually are. They're forward looking. They're prophetic statements. There in this prophecy, it has a dual fulfillment. Right? It relate, relates both to Christ's first coming and ultimately to his second coming. You see, God is assuring his people that he has a future plan. The writer of the book of Hebrews, he quotes this section of scripture relating to the future kingdom. Hebrews twelve twenty eight says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God was revealing through the prophet Haggai that he was going to send the Messiah, and that through the Messiah, his power and his glory and his kingdom, it would become a reality like never seen before. Right In verse 7, God says, I will fill this house with my glory. In verse 9, this glory will be greater than the former. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told that Jesus, by the Spirit, he went into the temple, and that God's presence and his power and his glory were manifested like never before. At the end of verse 9, God says this, And finally, in this place, I shall give my peace. And so, this place that, uh, that, God, that he refers to is Jerusalem. And the peace that he speaks of is not only the spiritual peace that he grants to believers through Christ, but it's that ultimate and eternal and lasting peace which he will extend to his creation through the eternal reign of Jesus, who's the Prince of Peace. Now, friends, how did the Israelites find courage and strength? They had to better understand God's character. And as Haggai spoke these words to the people, they began to understand who this God is that they were serving. They didn't need to fear future uncertainties because God had an ultimate purpose. Their work and their obedience, they would play an important part in accomplishing that purpose. And, you know, it's funny because this section of the book, it speaks directly to us here at Parkview, right? Just like the Israelites, we're in the midst of a challenging task, I I alluded to earlier, you know, a possible uh, east campus, a possible community center, work in in India. But, you know, one of the things we can look back at, and I don't know if you guys have seen this yet or not, this kind of an annual report that we just released. If you got one, uh, if you remember, you got one in the mail. Otherwise, last week we distributed them. This week there are some at the information center. But this is not just a financial document. Read through this and take a look at how faithful God has been in the lives of his people. This is a book of life change. It talks about how God has impacted and how you guys have impacted each other living in community and doing life together. So I'd encourage you if you haven't, grab one of these. But this is a reminder that a God who is faithful will continue the work in us. Right, as we go on this mission that Jesus has given us. Right? He lays out this mission uh, for both of us as individuals and as a church. In the Gospel of Matthew he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And, and maybe you're not yet on board with this mission. If not, ask yourself, what's holding you back? What is keeping you from jumping on board this mission? Are you afraid of failure? Maybe you're afraid of the unknown. Are you afraid that you don't know enough? Do you worry maybe that you're not good as good as other people? And friends, welcome to the club. I have fears every day. I worry that I won't measure up. And you know what? The person next to you, in the rows behind you and in the rows before you, They have fears and they have worries too. But God says, don't sweat that. He says, you know me. And you can find courage in knowing my character. He's a God who keeps his promises. He's a God who will always be with us. He's a God of power and he's a God with a purpose. And so what can we say? What should we do, right? It's simple. We can offer our lives completely to God. Friends, that's the question we should be asking ourselves today. If God has called us on something together, He's called you, each one of you, and me, and all of us together as a church, on a mission. He has a task in front of us that He wants us to do. Right? Jesus is very clear about that. But I get it, man. We get we get we get fearful. We get afraid. What if I don't measure up? What if I'm up, not up to the task? God says, "Don't sweat that. I got you covered." I'm with you. I'm a God of power. And I have a purpose for your life. And maybe you're still trying to figure out that purpose for your life. Sometimes I wonder what I'm going to do when I grow up. But that's the reality for all of us. My wife would probably say, I never actually haven't grown up yet. But really, ask yourself that question. If you're struggling with it, if you're wrestling with it, you know there'll be folks up here uh, in front at the end if you want them to pray for you, if you want to just talk about it. If you want to talk to me or anybody else, that'd be great. But the reality is this future hope that he talks about is peace that comes through knowing Jesus, right? Forget about religion. Forget about building things. God wants our heart, and he wants us to have a relationship with him. It's not about rules. It's not about rituals. It's not about doing enough stuff. It's simple, a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is what gives our lives purpose, and it also is what gives us that eternal hope and that eternal peace that he promises in that. And I hope you have that today. If you don't, hey, this is a great place to be. Keep coming back, keep asking questions, and uh, I'd love to talk to you about it further. Lord, you have called us on an adventure, And, and it is not something that we have to be afraid of or need to shrink back from, but we can go with confidence and with courage, Lord, knowing that you are with us. You give us that word, and we believe you because you are true. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Have a great week, guys. We'll see you next week.